Hello, and welcome to this episode of Careful Thinking, a new podcast exploring ideas about care. My name's Martin Robb, and I'm the host of the podcast. Careful Thinking is inspired by a passionate belief that thinking critically about care can both deepen our understanding and improve the day-to-day practice of care. In each episode of the podcast, you'll hear either a thoughtful reflection on a key issue connected with care or an in-depth conversation with a researcher, writer or practitioner at the cutting edge of current thinking about care. For this episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Xavier Simmons. Originally from Australia, Xavier is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Human Flourishing Programme at the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University in the United States. In April 2024, he'll be taking up a new post as director of the Plunkett Centre for Ethics at Australian Catholic University. Xavier's research interests include ethical issues at the beginning and end of life, ethical issues in aged care, and pandemic ethics. I first came across Xavier's work via an article he wrote about care for people suffering from dementia, which was informed by some of the ideas and theories that have influenced my own recent thinking about care. I was also impressed by a more recent article that Xavier published on the role of hospitality in care, which references the writings of Gabriel Marcel, one of my favourite philosophers. These articles prompted me to get hold of a copy of Xavier's recent book on conscience and conscientious objection in healthcare, which I warmly recommend. You can find details of all these publications in the show notes for the episode. So Xavier, welcome to Careful Thinking, and thank you for agreeing to take part in the podcast. It's wonderful to uh, be able to join you today, Martin. Thanks very much for the invitation. To start off our conversation, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your current role at Harvard and what you're working on at the moment. For sure. So I work for a social science research institute at Harvard called the Human Flourishing Program. We're part of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science, which is in the School of Arts and Sciences. Um, So as the title of uh, or name of the institute suggests, we're very interested in this idea of flourishing, what it is, what its determinants are, how it's distributed and how it can be promoted. I'm a philosopher by training and I bring to the program a a strongly philosophical um, uh, perspective on the topic of human flourishing. And some of the research I've been doing recently includes uh, tracing the philosophical genealogy of conscience back to Aristotle, but then through the medieval scholastic period um, through to more modern um, revitalizations of uh, the virtue ethics and uh, flourishing tradition um, in the form of um, uh, neo-Aristotelian philosophy um, coming out of the, um, the the Oxford philosophy department in the mid-20th century, but also positive psychology and um, virtue and character theory and educational studies. Uh, but I've also been doing some work on thinking about how we can um, uh, improve and promote flourishing at different stages of life. Uh, so I think flourishing is a concept that to some extent uh, can be understood with reference to a person's life as a whole, but also with reference to particular periods in a person's life. And specifically, I've been focusing recently on flourishing at the end of life, how we can help people with serious and terminal illness uh, to not just um, be comfortable, free from pain, but also to, in, in a certain sense, flourish um, despite the very challenging circumstances in which they find themselves. So that's uh, that's been um, a focus for uh, my recent research. Um, and we also do uh, a lot of public engagement and teaching. I'm currently working with a um, medical school in Rome, actually, to develop a core flourishing curriculum for their students there um, and, and thinking about how the research that we've done at the Human Flourishing Program, which is built upon um, uh, the, the research portfolio of a professor of public health, actually, um, Professor Tyler Vanderwill. So I'm thinking about how that research can actually inform the way we uh, promote student well-being in academic contexts, particularly higher educational contexts. So working with this medical school in Rome, Campus Biomedico, to develop a flourishing curriculum for their students there. So I do a, I do a fairly broad range 
of, uh, of, of, of projects in my role, uh, but um, they're all very interesting and, and hopefully as a philosopher, I um, am contributing valuably to the discourse on human flourishing. Thanks. That's that's a fascinating sort of range of work. You're obviously a very p- busy person. Um, <laughs> it, keeps me, it keeps me off the street. That's right. <laughs> so following on from that, uh, that's really interesting. Perhaps you could say something about what you did before, kind of how you got where you are today. What what have been the key points, the key stages in your academic career so far in terms of the kind of things you've worked on before you came to Harvard? So before coming to Harvard, I uh, well, first of all, I, I completed my PhD, which is uh, in philosophy, and I completed that at the Australian Catholic University, um, and uh, that was uh, specifically focused on my thesis was specifically focused on uh, distributive justice and the allocation of life-saving healthcare resources, uh, and I wrote that thesis just before the pandemic, actually. So um, I had quite a lot, I think, to contribute to the discussion of how we can uh, justly allocate healthcare resources uh, during um, conditions of um, uh, um, scarcity and, and during healthcare crises like the pandemic. Uh, and that was uh, that was a real, um, in a way, like a silver lining. I mean, it was a dreadful situation and um, a dreadful few years for everyone, but uh, I think that I could at least bring some ethical clarity to discussions about how we're allocating ventilators or vaccines and so forth uh, was, um, for me, a, a vindication, I think, of, of, of the, the, the value that serious philosophical research can have, um, the very practical value it can have, and um, even like policy implications that that research can have. So um, after completing my um, my PhD, I um, began a postdoc, um, a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Australian Catholic University, where I where I'd done my studies. Um, but I was working specifically for a bioethics centre called the Plunkett Centre for Ethics, um, and uh, I was working there as a researcher and also a um, a clinical ethics consultant um, for several major Catholic healthcare and aged care providers in Australia. Um, uh, so that was um, that was quite an interesting role. And I, I like, like my current role, I was um, wearing several different hats, um, doing high-level philosophical bioethics research, but also um, advising the Catholic healthcare sector and aged care sector on some of the challenges they were facing. And that's where I got interested in aged care ethics, actually. Um, because in Australia, uh, a few years ago, there was a Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. Um, and, uh, there basically, um, was, uh, there were revelations about, um, fairly egregious, um, forms of neglect and even abuse that had occurred in, uh, the aged care sector in Australia. Um, patients being, or, um, residents of aged care homes. Uh, being left without food, without medical care um, for, for long periods of time, um, misuse of uh, of um, psychotic medications, uh, antipsychotic medications to uh, try and uh, sedate patients who were agitated or distressed, um, and 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 other other issues, which um, I think pricks um, the conscience of of the Australian public, and people realise we need to do aged care better. We need to care better for all the members of our community. So I actually ended up pitching a project to the Fulbright Commission, the Australian American Fulbright Commission, uh, to do a research project on um, the the ethics of dementia um, and looking specifically at how we can use philosophical models of um, personhood and um, dignity to uh, in, inform ethical standards for aged care and improve the way essentially that we're um, that we're caring for um, people with uh, advanced dementia in the aged care sector because I think that one of the issues that came out in the Royal Commission was that this is not just an issue of um, short staffing or um, uh, kind of uh, poor training but also an issue of a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the enduring dignity of people who are suffering from advanced dementia, from cognitive decline, and uh, from related conditions. That these people, even though they may not necessarily be 
compass mentis, as, as we might say, they, um, they, they're just as deserving of excellent care um, and, uh, and compassion and support as any other member of the community. Uh, so that, that's um, how I got into that space. I'll talk a bit more about that later, uh, I think, in this, in this podcast. But uh, I ended up going to the United States, um, to Georgetown University to complete that project. Um, I'm very grateful to the Fulbright Commission for funding that uh, research. And then I eventually ended up here at, uh, at Harvard um, after, after completing that postdoctoral research project at, uh, at Georgetown. Um, I applied for the job that was being advertised, um, my current role at the Human Flourishing Program uh, and, and moved to, to Boston after a time in Washington, D.C. So. Thanks. Now, as you say, there's a number of issues there, which I'm sure we'll come on to when we talk about your article on dementia that I mentioned earlier. Um, before we do, just sticking with your own background, I just wondered, Xavier, if there's anything in your sort of personal background, um, you know, how you, has your academic journey or your choice of research topics been influenced at all by your family or personal experiences of caring or being cared for? Is there anything in your personal experience that shaped your, your kind of academic direction, if you like? I think my um my my mother actually was um uh in a way I I think instrumental in uh um instilling in me a strong ethical sensibility uh I think mum mum has sort of uh, always been a person I think who um has a strong sense of justice and and as as we were growing up as kids she she would um uh she would uh, tell us like when she thought something was wrong with society or with the way we'd acted, um, the way other people were acting and, uh, and, uh, she has a great sense of social justice. Um, uh, I, I mean, I also, um, I grew up in a family that, that has a, a kind of, a, um, a, I think a, a strong anchoring in the Christian social democratic tradition, if you will. Um, so several of my relatives have been involved in the Australian Labor Party um, and in the Labor movement here in Australia. Um, and I think to some extent like that, that also informed my uh, concern for questions of, um, of social justice. Uh, that, um, but, but it's not like, if you will, my tradition is not just a generic um, social democratic um, tradition. It's, it's specifically coming out of, I think, Catholic uh, social thought um, and uh, principles like solidarity, subsidiarity, preferential option for the poor, principles of the dignity of every human life and respect for the common good, concern for the common good. Like these, these are principles that I think were instilled in me from a young age and made, I think, working in ethics a natural progression, if you will, or a natural um, path to follow professionally, um, given that ethical formation I'd received as a kid, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and then throughout um, my university years. So I, I also just read quite a lot. I think as um, an adolescent, uh, in 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 this kind of general vein of um, of Catholic social thought. Um, so I, uh, um, I mean, I, re I read a lot of what what um, popes had written on this topic, Rerum Novarum. Um, and, uh, um, Tentesimus Annus, uh, these kind of papal encyclicals written by, um, Leo the 13th and John Paul II and, and, and now Pope Francis as well, um, focusing on these, uh, social questions. Uh, and I think that did also form my thinking on these issues. So, hmm. now you've anticipated my next question. You answered my next question, which was, it is obvious that your work has been shaped by your Catholic faith and you've kind of pulled out the elements of Catholic social teaching, which has obviously been really influential on your own academic interests. So thanks thanks for highlighting that. And that kind of links to moving on to your article in the Church Life Journal on dementia, where I first came across your your work. And you you say in that article that you well, you you claim that a personalist perspective can help us to understand the person suffering from dementia better and also to provide better help us to provide better care for them so difficult question to answer but maybe i can ask it in this way what what do you understand by personalism what what do you think its fundamental tenets are and how can personalism inform dementia care 
So, I mean, for me, I think that the, the basic commitment of every form of personalism, because there's a variety of forms of personalism, uh, is that persons are morally special and existentially special in the universe. There's something special about persons. And uh, I mean, there's a classical account of personhood according to which a person is a um, subsistent individual of a rational nature. I think that was Boethius's formulation or um, Aquinas building on Boethius um, as a kind of metaphysical statement about what a, what a person is like, a kind of a, a rational individual, if you will. Um, and I think that there is a common commitment amongst personalists of different stripes that there's something special about having that kind of um, individual individuality and capaci capacity for rational reflection uh, that makes persons um, morally special, deserving of our concern, uh, and also, um, in a way, kind of wonderful. There's something wonderful and magnificent about being a unique and unrepeatable individual. That's an idea that comes through in the, in the, in the work of John Paul II, I think, Karawai Tiwa. Um, I've got this quote from Love and Responsibility that I use in the, in the article uh, where Wojtyla notes that the human being is a single, unique and unrepeatable individual, sometimes thought of and chosen, as someone thought of and chosen from eternity, someone called and identified by name. It's a deeply religious account of personalism in a way, um, focusing on this idea from scripture that, that um, uh, God has has called each individual by name, um, that he is with us and he has called us by name and kind of known us from eternity. Uh, but certainly I think that, that even, even in its less religious formulations, um, there's a sense in which personalists are um, focused on ensuring that society's moral and social norms reflect a recognition that um, every human person um, has an inherent and inalienable dignity and we need to make sure that we are promoting and respecting that and we're not kind of, if you will, um, be becoming um, morally numb to the plight of persons in different situations of social disadvantage. Um, so mm -hmm. I, for me, I think that's really important in the context of dementia because my concern is that there's a kind of social death that people with dementia undergo, not not dissimilar to those experiencing racism or what have you, where um, they kind of become invisible to society. There's a sense in which they're physically present but morally absent, morally kind of non-existent, uh, not 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 worthy of consideration. And that's that's a deep concern that I have um, in the way uh, people with disabilities, physical and mental, are treated in our society. That's, that's really interesting. I, I was interested that you said one of the part of the essence of the human person is this capacity for rational reflection, which, of course, prompts the question, what happens when that's diminished with the experience of dementia? Um, it made me think of the feminist ethicist um, Eva Veda Kitte writing about caring for her severely disabled daughter, and she ends up locating personhood in a capacity for relationship rather than rational reflection or um and i suppose that's really what that's kind of one of the pivots of your article isn't it that actually when some of those aspects of the person uh, disappear it doesn't mean that the the dignity of the human person has gone and that there are other ways in which we can value people as as human um as persons yeah i can comment on that a bit if you'd like yeah, I think that's sure. a great observation. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think that's a fantastic um, point to highlight. And I would say that it is true that rationality is a, um, a capacity that uh, is, is under, undermined, at least to some extent, when someone is experiencing the effects of, of dementia, whatever kind of dementia it is. Um, I mean, but I think it's important, first of all, to understand rationality and the personalist tradition as a more radical capacity um a kind of a, a radical capacity for um uh like being the kind of thing that um under um under circumstances in which one's development um or functioning is not impaired one would express this trait 
um, in, a, in, a, in a very full sense of the word, of rationality, um, which is not to say that that's always the case and uh, that there that there are not situations where rationality can be um, affected negatively in different ways. And I also think it's important to highlight that in a way like there is no such thing as the full expression of rationality. Like to speak about it as if it's this kind of two-dimensional scalar concept um, is kind of very simplistic. Uh, so I think that we also ought to realise that in a way, even when we're at our best, so to speak, when we're in our prime, when everything's uh, going well in terms of our physical health and social circumstances, um, we all still make rational errors and where our judgment isn't the best and um, we have limits in our intelligence and I mean so in a way like it's a little bit of a myth this idea of the fully rational agent like the fully rational agent does not exist um, it's a fiction it's a philosophical fiction um, but also I think as you say um, in a sense like part of the importance of rationality is that it allows us to enter into relationships with other people um, other persons and even when, in a sense, like kind of our ability to comprehend those relationships is is compromised, I think there is something um, about a um, rationality conceived of is is if you will like something that's like integrated into the core of someone's being. Um, uh, so so rationality here being understood as a kind of um, uh, a, a a sort of a, a depth, an existential depth to the person almost. Um, that I think is very com compatible with even advanced forms of dementia because, I mean, there is still that depth to the person. Um, there's a history. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of emotional depth. Um, there's a, um, uh, a spiritual depth uh, to the person that I think perdures even when uh, the, the more um, proximate um, kind of visible manifestations of rationality may be absolutely yeah that's that, that i really like that answer yeah and, and in the the article something i really found fascinating was um you discussed the way that people with advanced advanced dementia can reciprocate care um and you linked to an article by some norwegian researchers on dementia and relational ethics can you say something about the ways in which people with dementia can reciprocate care so i think that in the, in that particular article, I mean, there's there's um, evidence of uh, how how I mean, even even in yeah, like situations where someone's suffering from fairly advanced dementia, um, they they reciprocate the care of their carers um, through a certain attentiveness, affection, nonverbal forms of communication. Um, they they but I I mean, even just like through in a sense like a smile, a touch, or simply helpful cooperation, like that, that they're recognizing their carer as, as a person as well. Um, and in a certain sense, we understand care as um, a form of like um, loving concern for another. Uh, I think that the, the, there is a way in which everyone can um, can show care um, uh, insofar as there's like a, um, there's a kind of um, modicum of, of, of awareness, I think that, mm -hmm. um, that loving concern can still be expressed. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's just like quite fascinating in a way that um, we have these assumptions. We think like, okay, well, when someone's really sick, um, or kind of experiencing significant disability, uh, then they're, they're just going to necessarily be very limited in this area um, of showing, of expressing love and concern for others. But it seems like. The literature suggests that that's one of the the last capacities that one could lose. Like, in fact, you'd think it might be the, one of the first, but but in fact, it's like that. There's um that love can still be expressed, um, or still be present, um, even when someone is um not particularly lucid. And then, I mean, the radical, the more radical argument that I make in the article is that, in a sense, love is an orientation of the heart. So it's not like you even have to be conscious, right? Like for that orientation of the heart to be present, um, and that's that's a kind of fairly deep philosophical claim uh, that that there's something that even like transcends 
conscious awareness uh, concerning the the orientation, sort of if you like, the, the orientation of our being towards a good um, that is expressive of love, and that that can be present even when someone um, is is completely um, unconscious, completely not aware of the world, um, or, or or something like that. So uh, that's that's what I would um, emphasize. I think when we're trying to think through. Um, uh, these questions of capacity and, and, and I would put, I always like to put pressure on arguments that seem to make assumptions about, um, the limited capacity of people with disability or serious illness. Yeah. And I, and I like that emphasis on mutuality. The first episode of the podcast, we were talking with, about uh, relational care, some research with some of my colleagues on relational care and the idea of, you know, the mutual give and take between carer and cared for. Um, and, you know, and I think what comes out from your work is, especially from your book, is that a personalist approach also sees the carer as a whole person and the whole person being present. Can we move on now to your other article uh, that I mentioned at the beginning, Xavier, about hospitality, also in Church Life Journal? And you say that it's a term that these days, sadly, we tend to associate more with the hotel and catering industry than than the care sector so what what do you mean by hospitality and why is it important for us to recover it do you think so in my understanding um hospitality is a very broad concept and i think in a certain sense i mean we need to th- we can think about the latin root of the word hospitality like hospice means stranger uh, so in a way, you can you can think about that etymology and wonder, okay, well, what what is hospitality then? Um, if we're if we're starting with a stranger, um, uh, and uh, and and the answer is that hospitality is is welcoming the stranger. Um, and classically, there are these um, examples I think from Greek culture of norms of hospitality that you would welcome uh, people who are on a long journey and needed lodging and food um, at a particular point in that journey, you would welcome them into your home. And that was a kind of social norm. Uh, and uh, then in the, in the early in, uh, early Middle Ages and also um, throughout the Middle Ages, there, there, there were Christian institutions um, uh, known as um, Xenodokia, um, which are like essentially... Um, once again, um, places of refuge for for strangers, um, for for those who um, are journeying far from home or have found themselves far from home for some reason. Uh, and these places would uh, the, the, these institutions. They were like all-purpose social welfare institutions. They provide uh, um, refuge, so lodging, um, but also um, healthcare. Um, uh, and even spiritual support for people who were either traveling and needed that or even those who were experiencing social ostracism. Um, so why am I introducing these historical anecdotes um, in, in giving an account of hospitality? Well, I think in a sense, like, as I mentioned, hospitality is to welcome the stranger, but if you want to give it its broadest uh, framing, it's in a way like welcoming the the stranger, another human being, um, into our hearts, and I think giving them refuge from the existential isolation that all human beings experience in life in a variety of forms, perhaps the most salient of which is physically being far from home um, or physically feeling like one is in, in a place that is foreign, um, but, but in a sense also like existentially um, experiencing um, isolation and then hospitality being the, the response of another human being to that condition where we say to someone, um, in fact, through our actions, we say to them, you, you are in fact welcome here and, uh, and, and we welcome them into our hearts and, and, and also through um, physical gestures that demonstrate that welcome. Um, so the hospitality for me is um, to welcome the stranger uh, understood both in a literal sense, but also in a, in a in a spiritual existential sense. Yeah, and in the article you you reference Marcel and his concept of disponibilité, which I think you admit there's no easy English translation. 
could be availability, more positively could be disposability. Um, and I was interested that you did connect hospitality and disponibility. Can you say a bit about how you think those two are, collect, are connected? Um, so, I mean, I think that disponibility is a really um, fecund concept here because uh, it highlights um, uh, the sense that um, we, we, we like hospitality can't just be superficial. Um, and I think that that is a risk, particularly in, in, in a way like in the highly bureaucratized, um, stretched, uh, um, rationalized health systems and aged care systems in which we work, uh, that, that in a sense we can, we can reduce these very rich human concepts to, to very superficial, um, minimum criteria like making sure that someone has a comfortable bed or something like that or um or making sure that uh that someone um is is attended to that they're not just waiting um for attention for several hours um i mean there's these kind of minimum criteria we could say but in a sense um and even just providing if you will like a good minimum of care but in a sense uh, to be uh, available to someone in Marcel's sense of the word is like to be available in every aspect of your being. Um, so not just uh, putting your professional expertise uh, at the service of the person, but also in a way being emotionally available, being um, uh, spiritually available, um, just being friendly uh, and um, and open in a way to uh, the um uh, the richness of the person with whom you're dealing, whatever that may entail, because um, you never really know maybe what a patient's going to say to you in a consultation, or you never really know um, what might come up when you're just um, uh, taking away the tray of someone in an, in an aged care home who, um, uh, who who you're caring for. Like you never know kind of what 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 sort of may arise in the in the day to day course of your job um and i think to be available to people um to to be open to um uh unexpected occurrences unexpected um uh, interactions um uh overtures where someone might actually want to um talk about something that's deeply meaningful to them like to have that if you will that that um that willingness to i think go on above, above and beyond the call of duty i think is is part of what it means to live hospitality in health and aged care. Uh, I think the challenge, of course, is that we, uh, we're talking about health systems and aged care systems that are incredibly stretched. Um, and, uh, and, and in a sense, there are these concerns about issues like compassion fatigue or burnout uh, that can happen if one makes oneself, um, arguably, the argument might be uh, too available um, if one gets too uh, emotionally invested in these concerns like hospitality. Um, but I think that's a false dichotomy. Uh, I think that um, it is true to say that we need to address these very serious systemic issues in healthcare, like underfunding and short staffing. And um, uh, I think the um, intense pressure uh, that, that medical professionals, for example, are placed under today. But I also think that in a way, um, the issue really at its heart um, in terms of like a lack of hospitality in health and aged care today relates to a kind of secularization, um, a reductionism um, in the way we think about medicine and aged care, um, where we've basically lost sight of the human person um, uh, who uh, is um, at the center of the, um, these enterprises. These, these these social practices and uh, and we've we've essentially focused more on um, the science rather than the art of healthcare and and aged care. Yeah, I, th I think once again you you probably answer my next question because you you say in the article that today the principal form of hospitality and healthcare is probably via chaplaincy services. But you also say it's responsibility of all healthcare practitioners to practice hospitality. And my, my question was going to be, how can busy clinicians and other practitioners achieve that? And I think you're saying it's a kind of both and. It's kind of a personal change, but it's also there needs to be systemic contextual um, frameworks that allow for that kind of hospitable 
um, availability kind of relationship. That's right. Yeah, I would say that there's yeah there's complementarity between chaplaincy care and medical care um, in meeting the needs of patients, um, and we ideally will have systems that have very good, um, well-resourced um, chaplaincy services in addition to having um, excellent medical resources available. I think that uh, we need to uh, find these um, these modes of delivering health care that, um, that really do, in a way, like um, care for the whole person uh, and, 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 and the needs of the person both physically and psychologically but also spiritually and existentially. And, and I think that is the future in a way. It's not that we're asking like doctors to, to become like chaplains or um, nurses to uh, become counselors as well. But uh, I think that there is a sense in which um, uh, everyone to some extent needs to um, uh, be at least open to this domain of human experience and human life, be aware of it. And then also, um, ideally, like that we promote awareness of the the, um, the 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 health and social benefits of spiritual care, um, which are quite profound. Um, we've been doing some research on this at the the Human Flourishing Program, and um, it seems that it really does um, improve patient well-being. Like to to even just take a spiritual history of a patient, um, yet alone uh, ensure that chaplains are available um, for uh, for sessions with the patient um, and uh, the patient is able to participate in spiritual practices that are meaningful for them. It all helps immensely, it seems. So we do well as a health system, I think, like just to recognize that as a bare minimum, the, the benefits and probably cost savings if you even want to get in that direction um, that this might bring if we, if we adopted these. Uh, I think multi-modal approaches to treating illness. Yeah, I agree. So let's turn finally to your book, Xavier, which you published just last year, Why Conscience Matters, A Defense of Conscientious Objection in Healthcare. I'm going to ask you the impossible question. Can you sum up the message of the book in a few sentences? Why does conscience matter for healthcare? So the first thing I do is take a brief step back and emphasize that I think conscience is a um, misunderstood uh, idea in philosophy. And in fact, it's dropped off the radar of philosophers in the last 50 to 70 years. And uh, I think that's um, a problem because I think that conscience is relevant to moral life and professional practice. Um, so it's relevant to moral life because in the end, conscience is is just um, moral reason viewed under a particular aspect. It's the subjective reception of objective truth. Um, and uh, it is, in a way, the moral life. It's kind of like without conscience, you don't have a moral life. Without a conscience, you, 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 are, you are not morally aware, if you will. You are not a kind of morally um, aware agent. Um, conscience matters um, uh, to moral life because uh, we... Um, we need that basic moral awareness, I think, to uh, to be virtuous moral agents. Uh, it, might, it matters to professional life because we need a basic moral awareness in professional life, I think, to pursue the goods that are at the heart of professional practices. So I have a very Aristotelian way of understanding professional work, and that is that it's a social practice, like medicine is a social practice or education. Uh, and so forth, and and that there there are goods at the heart of these practices, um, health in the case of medicine or healing or relief of suffering, education um, is directed towards knowledge, um, and I think even moral formation of, um, of of people, and that conscience matters because conscience is the capacity whereby we discern how to best realize those goods in particular situations. Um, conscience is. Uh, about like moral and technical judgment uh, in that way, and, and 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 like surely we all agree that good moral and technical judgment matter for um, healthcare. So I think the risk of of uh, introducing conventions, regulations, laws uh, that restrict the exercise of conscience in healthcare practice uh, is that you in fact undercut 
uh, the cultivation of good moral and technical judgment on the part of healthcare practitioners. And that doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't benefit patients. It doesn't benefit hospitals and health systems. And it clearly doesn't benefit the actual individual themselves who is being asked to suppress their deepest moral commitments and their moral perception. Yeah, and in the, in the book, you argue that restricting conscience has a negative impact on the practitioner and therefore a knock-on effect on the practice of care. And there's obviously a vision behind that of the, as you say, the care practitioner as a moral agent, uh, the virtuous practitioner, again, the you know the influence of virtue ethics that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, rather than just being someone who delivers a service, they are a moral agent. Um, you, you mentioned Alistair McIntyre and um, personal institutional integrity. Has has McIntyre and virtue ethics been a, an important influence on your thinking about this issue? Yeah, I think that McIntyre is like the philosophical influence that no matter how hard I try to um, to sort of, if you will, innovate and, uh, and, and kind of also draw on other sources, I think he's very central in my philosophical perspective on ethics and political philosophy. So, uh, and he's a he's a he's a, a, a tremendous philosophical, um, uh, um, I think, uh, uh, um, uh, influence um, on on so much of late twentieth century um, virtue ethics, but also just yeah, political philosophy, social philosophy generally. So. Um, yeah, McIntyre, I think, is um, recommended reading for anyone, I think, who would like to uh, understand um, contemporary ethics um, or uh, contemporary social uh, thinking, in, in particular in the Catholic tradition, uh, better. If you wanted to do that, I think McIntyre is a good place to start. Yeah, I'd agree. So obviously the principal issue where conscientious objection in healthcare has become contentious in recent years is abortion. But you also write in the book about conscience and end-of-life issues, which obviously have come into sharp focus recently with the MAID medical assistance in dying law in Canada and assistance, assisted suicide measures elsewhere. So can you say something about the relevance of conscientious objection for end-of-life care? I think that there's something very fundamental to the uh, professional formation of many doctors um, about the idea that um, doctors should, um, shouldn't should end the lives of patients, that medicine is about healing and trying to restore people to health where possible. Um, it is also about the relief of suffering, that that's understood in a very specific way, but I think um, in the minds of many doctors is fundamentally incompatible with euthanasia. So. I mean, I see in particular a, a very profound tension between the ethos of palliative care as it's developed uh, over the past 50 years or 70 years and um, if you're the ethos of um, the medical insistence in dying regime in Canada or the assisted dying regime in different Australian states. Uh, I think that um, the argument of the, the euthanasia lobby is that um, this is just another end-of-life option amongst others, but the response of those involved in palliative care and related medical disciplines is that, in fact, no, this is not just one option amongst others. This is an option which fundamentally undercuts the ethos of uh, the work that we're trying to do, um, which is that uh, death is a natural part of life and it should no longer, uh, should neither be um, hastened nor unnecessarily prolonged. Uh, so I think um, that to me seems like a pretty reasonable perspective. And in the end, with conscientious objection, we're not trying to say like we should allow conscientious objection because these people are right necessarily. Like it's more like all you really have to do is to show that it's a reasonable perspective, like one that we can't um, in good conscience uh, just um, ride rough got over um, as if, uh, this were a military context, um, or uh, um, and and I should add, like even in the military, I think the conscientious objection is important in some contexts, at least. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, my my perspective is that um, there are there are good arguments um, for allowing conscientious objection in not just the context of abortion, but also um, end of life care, and uh, that sadly those conscience uh, rights um, or liberties are not being respected as well as they could be in places like Canada 
Um, so I think that's an issue. But you do strike, at one point in your book, you do strike a more positive note when you talk about um, some current strands in popular thinking. You mentioned standpoint epistemology, Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, which might mean that people are more open to some of your arguments. So are you optimistic that arguments about the role of conscience might get a more positive reception in the current climate? I think that there is a... Um, th I'm just trying to think of the best way to phrase this. Like there, there is a, um, a a point of reference within contemporary culture uh, that you can you can point to and draw upon um, to help people to understand why conscience matters, and it's precisely those sorts of um, uh, developments that you've highlighted there. I think these these social developments, these social movements that rely on a kind of epistemology that I think recognizes that um, if an individual says um, something matters, but just by the very fact that they've said that, that something matters to them, um, gives that claim a kind of um, epistemic strength, um, like because it's originated from the agent themselves, like, like, I know myself best to some extent. Um, and I think obviously there's all sorts of like complex philosophical discussion that can take place in this, um, in this space, like questions about like our own, the, 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 the verticality, if you will, of veracity of our own self perceptions. Um, and, and, and our own understanding of ourselves can be clouded in all sorts of ways. But I do think in general, people recognize like that, um, when someone, sincerely expresses a particular claim about um, uh, something being wrong or right in their best estimation, um, like that they've thought seriously about something and that they believe it to be true. Um, I think that there's a lot of people who would say, okay, well, we need to actually pay attention to that. Like society has um, throughout the 20th century in various ways, um, I think like, uh, try to erase the individual um, and uh, ignore uh, the, um, the, if you will, like the, the, the rights and autonomy of individuals. And, and we're getting to a point now where we're saying, no, I mean, I think that um, the, the liberties of the individual, um, the, um, I think particularly like minorities as well, um, which is important uh, in, in the context of the movements you've mentioned, uh, those really matter, and we need to give a kind of special importance um, to those perspectives. So there's a there's a kind of analogy in the conscientious objection debate because mm. sometimes conscientious objectors are cast as the villains in the story, like they're trying to impose their views on others. But I think really, when you look at it, I mean, they're the, they're vulnerable, um, they're scared, uh, they they they're in these vast impersonal healthcare institutions and. They just want they just want to do what they think is right and uh, and they don't necessarily want to like cause a big fuss about it, but they do feel like they need to act in accord with their deep beliefs and that I think is something that we should respect. Thanks very much that's been a really helpful summary of the book and I would recommend it to to our listeners um, so pulling back from that, I think this is my final question Xavier um, are there any other thinkers or particular books or articles that we haven't mentioned that have been important to your work on the ethics of care um or it doesn't matter if you've mentioned them before who would you say are your principal philosophical guides in this work i mean you've mentioned a few you've mentioned personalism you mentioned john paul you've mentioned aristotle mcintyre is there anybody we've missed uh, so i mean i i think um either um uh Kite is is as well like um, an influence, I think. I think uh, also um, uh, the the recent work um, that Carter Sneed um, has uh, has done. I think uh, in his book, um, uh, the um, what it means to be human: the case for the body in public bioethics. I think that's a nice articulation of a different approach to bioethics that emphasizes human relationality and vulnerability, and tries to build an ethics based on that. Um, and, uh, and then I think, I mean, for me, like, actually, perhaps one of the biggest philosophical influences understood in the broad sense of the word was, um, the, the, the example of, 
uh, nuns in the aged care homes that I volunteered in as a, as a kind of young adult. Um, I think going and actually just helping out at nursing homes in Australia and um, seeing the dedication and service and le- um, that legacy of service uh, that these nuns had, um, I helped out. I remember in Melbourne at St. Joseph's uh, nursing home um, in Northcote and um, I that's a little sisters of the poor nursing home. And uh, I think, um, I mean, just, just to see the like profound um, emphasis on the importance of care that's, that's part of the uh, spirituality of these religious orders. Um, for me, like that was, I, I think, um, a very uh, a formative experience and something that, that really brought home to me uh, how this is not just um, a good thing to do or one good thing amongst others, but like that we're really focusing on something that's an essential need of human beings to be cared for by others. Um, and uh, and that, that, that as a society, like we don't lose track of that. We don't lose sight of that. I think it's part of what it means to uh, maintain a sense of the dignity of every human life. That's a really nice, important note to end on. Thanks very much, Xavier. Thanks for an absolutely fascinating and really rich conversation, Xavier. And I think we've managed to cover a lot of ground, but I think there's much more we could talk about if we had more time on each of those issues. So it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Um, Wish you all the best in your future work. And I think it's really valuable work you're doing. And uh, I sure look forward to, to following your work in future years when you return to Australia. So good luck with that. Thanks very much, Martin. Great to, great to be on the show. So that's all for this episode of Careful Thinking. You can find full details of the episode in the show notes below. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to offer feedback on this episode, you can send an email to carefulthinkingpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.